From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you RBS trials fingerprint credit cards, Visa told to hire PwC to help with outages, and Fintechs won big against incumbents at the British Bank Awards, and so did we. Uh, all this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 305 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. I'm Sarah Kachansky and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Simon Taylor. How are we today, Simon? Uh, going really, really well. We won an award. We'll get onto that later. Um, <laughs> it's been a huge week. Again, Fintech news never sleeps. All about the remedy still. The rumors rumble on. I'm excited for this one. And uh, I've had a really interesting week. There's a lot of interesting growth companies. Sharon, you'll probably feel this as well, uh, who have never worked with consultancies before. Unique but exciting challenges, definitely. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying my life. Cool. Yeah, it's very I'm lovely. glad you're enjoying uh, your life. That's I am a good sign. <laughs> good challenges. They're the challenges I want. Um, they're exciting things coming up in the future of 11FS for sure. But as you alluded to, we are not alone. We are joined by some awesome guests, both of whom are making repeat appearances. We have Daniel Hegarty, the CEO of Habito. How are you today, Daniel? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Am I still calling you Daniel? Am I going back to Dan? It's completely up to you. Okay. Whatever, whatever makes you comfortable. Which it, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if there's a level of formality I reach them, like I should retract that. Let's see how we go. Cool. <laughs> Um, we're also joined by Sharon O'Day, who is founder of communications and collaboration consultancy, Lithos Partners. How are you today, Sharon? I'm very well. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. And let's get on with the news. So the first story today uh, comes from the BBC, and it's that RBS trials biometric fingerprint bank card. So RBS is to pilot a biometric bank card, which will allow customers to verify a purchase using their fingerprint. Those taking part in the trial will not need to use a PIN to verify transactions of more than £30. Yay. RBS has said the technology was designed to increase security and make payments and tills easier. Um, the trial will involve 200 RBS and NatWest customers in the UK, and it's due to start in April and last uh, three months from that point onwards. Um, the bank cards are fitted with a built-in sensor, which is powered by the payment terminals, so NFC. Um, NatWest said retailers would not have to make any changes to existing payment terminals to accept the new cards, and it's working with both Visa and MasterCard to ensure that it'll be accepted in all locations. So wait, they're powered by the terminals, so this thing doesn't work. So I have to stick my card into the terminal and then use my fingerprint? No, no, you just hold it above it. That's the same as like how oh, most right, NFC Oh, right, so it's, it's NFC work. powered. Right, okay, so that's yeah, yeah. different. That's yeah, different. Yeah, yeah, it's NFC powered. So, so I, I actually, I'm going to get my my two cents in here because everything everybody else on the table has a very different opinion to me do not think that this is an awful idea because with strong customer authentication coming in the big banks were genuinely considering reintroducing those hardware pin centuries because they can't use sms anymore and they're not equipped to a lot of them to build in any of the more interesting authentication. So for example, Monzo does that push notification thing. Are you trying to spend this much money? And you just go, yes, I am. And it's done. Fingerprint and you're done. Um, and your fingerprint there when you're done. But the big banks are not equipped to do that yet. So this is their kind of halfway house. But I don't, as far as I don't understand everyone, it. Sorry? Everyone already carries something around in their pocket, which they can do authentication on. What's if the they have data... And if that thing in their pocket has power. Yeah, but like how often does it not really? Like, I mean, if what, I'm going to do happens? a strong off, like how much pain am I? How If I'm really, like, I, I ju I'm just not saying. And also I could use the chip and pin to get exactly the same result, right? So like, if I'm going into a store and I need to do a strong customer off, I can use my pin. So I could do contactless and pin. I could do contactless and pin against my phone. There are so many things that don't mean that the device itself gets a fingerprint reader. Like I, I just fundamentally do not understand this one like it just strikes me as being a really really awkward way of putting the fingerprint on the card now cards are cheap that's what makes them good if you get replacing them is really really cheap suddenly adding this to them makes cards more expensive it makes them easier to break it, the thing that was good about the card is now gone so i'm I get the strong customer authentication point but i just want to see more imagination here i don't want to see Gimmickry with cards. This this gimmickry with cards thing comes up every two years. I see the same press release every two years. It never gets adopted, which makes me think this press release must, and this is speculation on my part, it's funded by the person who makes the cards that wants to sell a load of these cards right in time for strong customer off. 
Yeah, does anyone remember the uh, MasterCard display card? Yes. Yeah, I actually had one. So I was the wow, one bank that used them. Yes. And it was exactly that. You know, they wanted to push that as a technology and it just simply didn't take off. Every time I went anywhere with it, people go, what is that? It, you know, it, and it didn't really serve any real purpose. It just made the transaction more difficult, more complicated. It had one of the, so for people who don't know, it was, it had the equivalent of your kind of uh, security dongle thing where you put your pin number and it gives you an authentication that you can use in your online banking to set up new payees and things like that uh, but it was basically rubbish that on, new payees thing right so yes we've all had that experience in the uk you're going to set up a new payee on your online banking and there's basically one of two ways you can do it you either get an sms um through some banks which we know sms is quite non-secure so we, we probably want to avoid sms for two-factor authentication and then the other way to do it is with those horrible, horrible, expensive card readers card readers that everybody loses or only uses twice a year, and it's, and it's kind of horrific. So those are the two-factor auths. And strong customer authentication, of course, Sarah, does need two factors of authentication. Something I know, something I am, something I have, right? And something I know is my PIN, something I have is my phone, something I have is my card. I mean, Dan, would you see yourself really, can you see a good use case for the, for the fingerprint on the card? Have I missed it? Am I just way off base here? No, no, I was struggling very hard before I came to try and... I've got another build. one. I don't know my PIN for my Monzo card because I never use it. So if I try and use my Monzo for above 30 quid, I go, up, uh, up, uh, uh, nope, and have to pull out another card because I never use it. So I tap, 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 tap. So with this, I wouldn't have to remember my PIN. I could put my thumb on it. Just saying, there's another use but case. But you can do that with your phone. Well, I could if my Monzo card worked in Google Pay, which it doesn't at the moment because Google Pay have got a problem with my, my uh, personal yes. That's why you card. need to be on Apple. Yeah, we're not having that debate today. <laughs> and everything comes back to Apple versus Google ultimately. Yeah. Uh, let's have more drinks before we get into that one. Go on, Dan. I guess I was just, I, what I still don't quite understand is where they're going to be storing the fingerprint that they're validating it against. So you're In gonna... a book with carbon copies, the back of your local NatWest branch. <laughs> like, like the police go to that yeah. with a hat. That's very, very comforting. But that seems peculiar to me, particularly if then... Am I going to go to a branch? Yeah, how are you personalizing that card with your fingerprint in the first place? Like the the experience for uh, loading my fingerprint on that, it probably has to be in a card reader at the time because otherwise how is the card communicating with the bank? Or it's against a phone, and in which case if it's against a phone, why am I not just doing what every challenger does these days, which is tap the card against the phone and use the NFC, and now the phone is effectively uh, personalized? Well, I think I'd be a lot more comfortable if I thought it was on some kind of hardware encrypted chip somewhere. The idea of it being in the cloud, or particularly in NetWest's infrastructure, is kind of terrifying. I think I think there's a lot of questions to be answered. I, you know, as as much as I enjoy playing the devil's advocate, I do th I do think we're going to be a long time we see this taking can, off. Can I just implore people to who who like want to cover these stories to just stop? Like, because <laughs> because I get it. It must have been a slow news day in the technology world, and a bank did a thing. Oh, uh, that's unfair. I think. Oh well, is it? You know, everyone's using their card as a point of differentiation now, aren't they? So you've got your coral card. You've got your vertical card. You've got metal cards for people with, you know. Uh, and look, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it, with it's worked. Self-esteem it, issues. Look, to be fair, it's worked. It's got the headline. Um, I don't think I can stop people. I'm just asking them. <laughs> I, think you, I think you and I are going to agree to disagree. Well, we're just going to disagree on this. Yeah, I think it. we'll just strongly disagree. We'll take it offline. Indeed. Let's let's just uh, settle this one over alcohol. Wine, red wine and beer. Let's, let's argue this one out. <laughs> um, but I'm going to move us on in the meantime. So... The next story is from IT News, and it's the Bank of England has told Visa to hire PwC after the 2018 outage. So in order to avoid a repeat of June's outage affecting 5.2 million transactions in Britain and across Europe, um, you know, this is this is their remedy, if you like. Uh, it says, as a further action, it is also using its powers to require Visa Europe to appoint an independent third party, PwC. I don't know how independent they are if the Bank of England has told them to appoint that third party may have missed something. Mm. Um, the B of E said that its action does not imply that Visa Europe has broken any rules or that it was being sanctioned. Um, PwC will provide a final report to the Bank of England later this year. I mean, the investigation kind of makes sense, but the Bank of England deciding who's doing the investigation is what's confused me a little I looked into this there. one, though. So they just have a panel. That, yeah. that, you know, it's kind of like a taxi rent principle. So... 
the financial service institution in question can either appoint someone and then take it to the regulator for approval or the regulator will just suggest one that I think is done off a, a so, kind of so tender process. So could have said, we don't want PwC, we want Deloitte or something yeah, instead yeah. and they would have been okay. I think they either have it approved by the regulator or there's a tender process, which, you know, say what you like about tender processes, but it works in the normal way as I understand it. I, I think the bigger part is that it's newsworthy that somebody, uh, the Bank of England is instructing this to happen. Uh, that to me is quite powerful because uh, I, more broadly, if you step back and look at the sheer number of outages we've seen in the past couple of years, these outages stories keep, keep rumbling on and i think it probably does make sense to have some external eyes look at these things um we know that there's it's not easy running these at scale systems that are critical national infrastructure and nobody's pretending that this stuff is easy um but more eyes looking on it can surely only be a good thing yeah i would agree with that so you know i I understand on this particular outage it was a human error but you can always look at what the source of that error is is it training is it a process thing Whereas if you do that internally, you're kind of marking your own homework. So there is something to be said for bringing that external view to it. Do we think, though, that there's people who've been doing this marking of the homework of the big banks for the past 30, 40, 50 years, or the way they've been doing it has been effective from a tech standpoint? Because my experience of auditors is it's typically show me your processes. It's not, um, there are things beyond that, but it's very like, show me the process for your training. Show me your training guides. It's show me all of the documentation around it. But there are other things that you can do that may not be captured. Maybe they are, and I'm not closer to them, and apologies to anybody at PwC if if there are. But my experience of having been on the other side of an audit is it's very rarely show me how your data is driving better decisions. Show me your how you're building automated tools that are show, you know kind of uh, giving you pre-warnings that something's going wrong. Show me how you've changed the nature of testings and upgrades and outages uh, because the very concept of an outage, you know, like a planned outage or not, is based off the fact that you can't do graceful degradation. In other words, you can't take a bit of a system down. It, it either all goes or nothing goes. Like that to me is is an area that probably doesn't get enough focus. Was this not, if I remember correctly, because in fact, you and I, Sharon, were having we were beverages having and we had to pause because this happened because it was, you know, the, the fintech world had combusted and we had to stop. Um, but if I remember correctly, this was down to kind of a backup and a backup and a backup failing. It was kind of one of those awful sort of um, perfect storms of kind of like everything kind of went slightly wrong at the same time. Um, so I think, you know, whilst you can talk about the processes, I just don't think this kind of thing is going to prevent it happening again. I just, I just don't think that's possible because I think in that particular set of circumstances, you can always plan for what you know, but you can't plan for what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know and it hasn't happened yet. So when British Airways systems entirely went down, what happened was the cleaner unplugged a server to plug I don't know, I think it was a Hoover or some other kind of electronic cleaning device in. And it took out all of British Airways systems in one go. British Airways had all this cybersecurity in place. They hadn't even occurred to them that like one person pulling one plug out of the wall might take them down domino-wide, you know, worldwide. So, but that's the nature know. of how their tech is set up. Like that cannot happen if your tech is organized differently. Now, you can still have outages if your tech is organized differently, but that particular type of outage is extremely unlikely. If you build a microservices architecture that is multi-cloud, and sorry for the buzzword, but if you break up your service into lots of little smaller pieces and you host it in many different places, it's very hard to have this problem. The costs of that are just... I guess they're just unthinkable when you're looking at kind of structures of this, this kind of the like you know forty years of iteration on a problematic piece of software. Like what you're left with is just completely incomprehensible. And, and the guy who's going to sign off like the five hundred million pound budget to move it to microservices, like it's well, you see, it's this tough. is. But the, I, I think again, this comes to the assumption that it's an all or nothing game, right? So I think what you see is a lot of people who have uh, legacy hardware and software code bases thinking, okay, so I have to have this big bang moment in which I shift all of this capability I have now into all of this new microservices architecture. And actually, if you don't think about it that way, if you think about what are these pockets of microservices I can build that take a, that can be gracefully degraded. Typically, uh, any architect or CTO who's really worked with microservices is very adept at finding those solutions. And it's something we, we talk about with our clients a lot is there's always a way in with microservices. There's always a place to start and gracefully walking towards life service without doing big bangs. It, it surely has to be possible. And I'm willing to bet Visa have, have looked at this and looked at it, um, not to say that they hadn't. But it, I think it does speak to the importance of moving in that direction. Direction. Sure. 
Well, if anybody at Visa is interested, you know where Simon is. Mm-hmm. Um, our next story is, um, you know, the periodic, oh my goodness, um, the cash system is on the verge of collapse story, this time from The Guardian. Um, so more than 8 million UK adults would struggle to cope in a cashless society, according to a major report, which claims that the country's cash infrastructure is in danger of collapsing. Debit cards last year officially overtook notes and coins as the most popular form of payment in the UK for the first time. And the report predicted that cash could fall to just 10% of all payments within the next 15 years. The report's authors said the UK was not ready to go cashless and that despite the runway growth of contactless and mobile payments, a significant number of people, um, and they reckoned around 2.2 million, were currently using cash for all their day-to-day transactions. So the access to cash reviews said companies and organizations providing essential services should be required to ensure that consumers can continue to pay by cash, Um, which is estimated that cash machines around the UK are closing at a rate of 300 a month. So, I mean, I've heard the banker's side of this story, which is um, it's not us taking the cash away, it's the people who provide the cash machines taking the cash machines away. Arguably, they're responsible insofar as, you know, they're also taking branches away. But also, you know, they're saying they, they just don't know where to move the cash to because it's so sporadic and so, you know, such small pockets of it that it's incredibly difficult for them to know where that cash needs to be. So it's not a deliberate kind of like, oh, well, we're taking all the cash away. It's a kind of, oh, goodness, did we miss that like one village somewhere in rural Scotland? So I actually think this is an important point. I think there are a lot of vulnerable groups who do rely on cash. And it's not just the people that sort of spring to mind for everybody, either the homeless or buskers or, or um, you know, people who um, are living either in poverty or, you know, with low incomes. There's an awful lot of groups, if you look at, you know, either elderly pensioners who have no other way to kind of um, budget or, or save. There's, um, you know, uh, groups of uh, vulnerable women who have that pocket of cash and they need to hold on to it because then they've got it and they have control of it, um, particularly if they're in relationships where somebody else might be controlling their bank account. So I, I do think it's important that we find a way to maintain whether it is cash or another form of payment, I don't know, but to maintain something that helps those vulnerable populations just remain part of the economy, just remain part of, you know, day-to-day society. What I thought was quite interesting about this, because it was a Treasury report that was put out from the UK Parliament, was around actually the, the challenge of leaving all of this to market forces. Because what's happened so far is that, you know, cash machines have disappeared because people simply haven't been using them. I mean, I guess all of you, I, I never go to a cash, although I'll tell you a story about a cash machine in a minute. Oh. Um, but I very rarely go to cash machines. But, you know, they've all been, they've started just because simply people aren't using them, but it means that there, it is not being done in a planned way, which means that we, we run that risk of further excluding people who are already socially excluded. Exactly what the banks are saying. Yeah. Like it's, we're not doing, we have, we have no oversight of this. And so we think that we're leaving, you know, the classic example which I said before, like the last bank in town uh, in the village where my mum lives thought that it was fine because the post office was there. The post office thought it was fine because the last bank in town was there. The post office couldn't find a postmaster to take over. So all of a sudden they both went at the same time, but nobody had communicated that to each other. And so it wasn't a deliberate move on either part. I, I totally get the business case for this from a bank's perspective, from a from a retailer's perspective, and even from a macro um, prudential perspective for the, for the Bank of England. Cash costs the economy a remarkable amount. It's a massive risk of crime and the great market uh, and also it, there's a whole bunch of challenges that present it and consumers generally prefer the alternatives which is your point about market forces right but it's also not just market forces but policy uh, would prefer there to be uh, a lot less cash and the only alternative is is a form of digital cash but every time you make that digital cash linked to the state in the way that banking is the vulnerable again for the points that Sarah raised are so, uh, without intent uh, often excluded so and we covered this story briefly uh, a similar story in the uh, in the US on episode 301 it does seem to be a theme now that the major western economies are grappling with following the lead from Scandinavia and of course we saw India had demonetized one of its major notes as well so there's always this balance between you know, there's there's the sort of the 500 euro note, which is a great way to launder money, which, you know, the, the high denominated notes just kind of make a lot less sense. But the lower denominations of cash are vital lifebloods. And the only alternative is is not considered palatable, because if you have truly digital cash, you're looking at something that looks a lot like Bitcoin. And, you know, that feels scary. But if you were to introduce cash today as a new technology that hadn't existed previously, you know, uh, banks and the government would be terrified of it based on you know how risky it is compared to other forms of payment 
Yeah, it, it makes me think of the Gibson quote, you know, the uh, the futures here, it's just not evenly distributed. And even going back to the previous point about um, SCA as secure customer authentication, like there's a lot of kind of assumptions that we're making about the level of technology that people have in their pockets for making these transactions. So, no, I think, it, I think it's kind of, it's very easy sitting in East London thinking about the future of fintech to forget a pretty large swathe of customers who are mostly ignored by fintech. But all I would say is there are some pretty humble technologies in the form of prepaid debit cards if they weren't egregiously priced for utilization that seem like the banks could be engaging even though there isn't much upside in it for them. I, th- I think from just to, g- to get back to my point, sorry, Sean, um, is that even whatever, whether it's digital or not, whether it's a prepaid debit card, it's that ability to hold on to something and to hide it. Physical. Um, yeah. the, physical the physical need for it. And there are a lot of people in this world who need to have something they can hide in their pocket, but not, not because, you know, they're trying to do something illegal, but because somebody else might take it away from them if it's electronic. And whatever, you know, if you take that one prepaid card away, which is, you know, the one which your government benefits are paid into or, you know, whatever it is, then you've got nothing. Whereas if you've got five twenty pound notes and you've got one in the pocket of this coat and one in that handbag and one in that shoe, then you've got something that you can hold. And, and whether that's and that, that right now I'm talking about twenty pound notes, it could, historically it might have been gold or jewellery, and the same idea is there. But I think this idea of like moving everything digital, I don't think that, that digital will ever be the solution because it can always be taken away. There's always going to be unless it's in, you know indelibly tied to your person, unless there is a biometric way in which all those funds are attached to you. I, I just don't think it, there is a way around that problem. Uh, particularly Sorry, to the point we haven't got away from, from outages. So, you know, thinking about that yeah. time when, the, when Visa went down and you were in, and I were in the pub, it was only that one of us had a mask, uh, sorry, an Amex that we were still able to pay for our drinks. Until, you know, it's, it's completely reliable. It's just not, we still need to have some kind of backup. But I think there's an important point there around digital skills and capability, which is you've seen that with a lot of um, government digital services in particular. They've gone from the early adopters and then, you know, that they're sort of mainstream. But there's there's a kind of laggard um, group in, at the end of that. And the challenge isn't that the services aren't easy to use. It's that um, digital literacy is so tightly bound up with functional literacy for a lot of people. And once you add in financial literacy to that, that becomes ever more complex as well. So I think this we need to think about this from a policy level that actually how do we support people who potentially have uh, extremely low digital skills to be able to use digital currency in any form? I think it's absolutely right. The, the one slightly apocryphal story I was going to tell was Ray Charles historically would uh, only be paid in dollar bills because he didn't trust anybody to, because all American bills are the same size mm-hmm. and feel the same. So he would always want to be able to count them because he didn't trust that he wouldn't be done over for, by being blind. Yeah. So it's kind of... Can I tell you about the amazing ATM I saw this week? <laughs> Please do. So, you know, we've been losing ATMs. So yes. I, I was running a workshop in, um, in Warwick University. And for one reason or another, I needed uh, some coins for an icebreaker. And of course, I don't have a co- pocket full of shrapnel. Mm-hmm. So I looked up that there was, of course, a bank on campus. So I went, I was like, I'd go to Barclays. Barclays don't have cash anymore. Um, but so I explained the situation. They went, oh, yeah, we've got this cash machine that dispenses coins. <laughs> so um, we managed to get a, take someone with a Barclays card there and get 50p in, in silver out of a cash machine. What, what's the use case for I it? I don't know. Is I, it vending machines? Is the only thing I can think of. Vending machines take, take cards. cards. Even when I was a student, you know, you get a fiver and it would get you two pints. What is it for? I'm still boggling. Does also, still can boggling? I get one pences? Because yes. then it because then I would feel like I've won at the uh, in gambling <laughs> in oh, Vegas. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where you get the ting, 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 yeah. ting, ting, ting. I'm still kicking myself for not getting a video of it, but it exists and I still can't understand why. If anybody knows why, please do let us know. I really want to know the answer to that question. Um, from cash to instant transfers, um, PayPal now lets US customers instantly transfer funds to bank accounts in seconds, according to TechCrunch. So PayPal is launching instant transfer to bank, which will let those receiving money via PayPal instantly move that into their bank accounts to access as cash or however else they would like to use it, it says here. I mean... I don't know. Mm. Um, the service is now being rolled out to consumers in the US and will be extended to businesses in the country in coming weeks. Um, it's the same cost as transferring to a debit card. So 1% of the transaction amount up to a maximum fee of $10. Um, before this launch, PayPal's 267 million individual account users um, and 21 million merchant account users could transfer funds to bank accounts, but it would take days or even longer to complete the transactions because America. Um Having an effective way of transferring the money out of PayPal into one's bank account can make things easier. But for gig economy workers, for anybody who needs instant access to cash flow, actually, 
Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, an interesting service. They're they're using um, they're using ACH but via JP Morgan Chase, which is another kind of interesting partnership in there as well. So so what do we think of this other than like you know America? What I think is quite interesting is how they're responding to changes in the labour market. So the COO, Bill Reddy, his name, was talking about how 90% of all job growth is in the alternative workforce. So we've heard a lot about that. It was the theme of the G20 back in December. A lot of the World Economic Forum this year was talking about the future of work and changes to the workforce. And there is that kind of demand for financial services to respond to changes in the workplace, which are happening in response to changes to technology. So I think that's super interesting. There was... um. What was it? There was a report from Accenture last year that said that within 10 years, um, most some of the biggest companies in the world will employ no one outside the C-suite, that everything will be done through transactional services and um, and contractors and, and outsourcing, which I think is super interesting. So how, how do our financial services and products start to respond to those quite significant and seismic changes in the way that people are employed and paid? And it's interesting, you are seeing um, bank accounts and banking services aimed increasingly at freelancers. Uh, the borderless account uh, is, is one classic example from TransferWise, and there are many others like it uh, for people that are, are used to working on Fiverr and, and getting those gigs, and or, or more broadly as, as, a, as a freelancer doing uh, short-term work. Interesting, though, that uh, you know, PayPal have been, you know, they've got 267 million accounts, but... They've been around since the 90s now. They haven't really been doing much. And I, I think there's there's probably been other instant transfer services in the US market. Venmo and Square Cash seem to be, and then of course Zelle, seem to have much more dominance than this. Is PayPal strike me as a bit of an incumbent? Like this doesn't feel like innovation to me. This is just a straight up partnership. This doesn't feel very exciting I, I i don't know like no great that you're getting to real-time payments great that real-time payments are becoming normal but it, what does it say about where paypal are as an organization you know outside of braintree outside of um kind of some of the some of the, the the venmo stuff where's the where's the core of it or is this them bringing stuff that they had at the edge into the core I, I don't really know but they're an interesting beast at the moment they they seem to be uh you know what's the future of paypal I don't think I know the answer to that question. Does anybody else know the answer to that question? Answers <laughs> on a postcard. Uh, Simon at 11fs.com. I'm just curious about them because they, they were the poster child for fintech. They were one of the first, you know, dot-com-based fintechs. So what are they going to do next? And do they do they fade away into incumbency or do they keep acquiring to grow? So I would, my, you know, I, I do consider them an incumbent, actually, when I look at them um, from, from you know, the work that I do in my day job, if you like, is, you know, on the research team, when we're looking at the ecosystem, PayPal is very much an incumbent. Um, so which I suspect means that they have legacy systems, and it takes them a long time to introduce new things. Um, but I also think that, you know, that they have that, um, it's not necessarily even like, you know, the, the technology problem, it feels to me also like slightly lazy. We didn't, need it particularly with that much in america do you know what i mean like people in america are so used to it taking that much time to do anything or to paying a fee but actually what they're being here is kind of a fast follower it hadn't they're being blockbuster if you like it hadn't occurred to them that stripe or square might come in and be like <laughs> you know what fast money that's good um so i yeah but i i think they're probably just i think in the sense of an incumbent i think it's not necessarily technology it's more mentality you know, that hearts and minds conversation we have on a regular basis we we see parallels so obviously working in the mortgage industry we see like i guess i think one in three under 35s now self-employed um and given that we kind of bias quite heavily towards the under 35s it's it's extraordinary how disinterested the the lenders are in catering to that market and i mean if you don't have you know at least two to three years of sa302s and stability of income and validation of where it's going to come from in the future like you're not getting a mortgage which given that i guess it's kind of the well, apart from cash maybe the fundamental instrument that underpins society like the ownership of property pretty bizarre that one in 335s is kind of excluded technically uh, uh, one in three and more in the future so it, you're saying no to a third of the market now you would be saying no to more of the market in the future and it strikes me that incumbents generally tend to retrench into what they know and the people they used to serve and that and then just retrench and retrench and retrench so where's the growth going to come from and i think that's a real question for incumbents and um you know Broadly, that's an interesting question of how do you deal with freelancers? Are your products ready for freelancers or are products the answer? You know, we always talk about the difference between commodity products and 
truly digital services, a commodity product is, oh, well, we've always sold this type of loan. This is the information we've always needed for this type of loan. What do you mean you don't fit inside our boxes? Whereas the service is the other way around. It's like, how can we make your data, how can we get more of it and make sense of you and offer something that's contextual to who you are? And I think increasingly you see uh, desire and demand from the market for the consumer to be understood by the uh, the financial services provider. I think it's a fascinating tension because obviously most of the mortgage regulation came about in 2012 it took five years for the crash to kind of turn into legislation. And I think last year, the, the kind of default rate in mortgage was seven basis points. So people are not being kicked out of their homes. People, it's, it's very difficult to get a mortgage and consumers are consequently protected from the risk of taking on debt that they can't afford. But then the counterpoint is it's actually very difficult for a lender to start to stretch policy and take a, a looser view on the validation of self-employed income. We see the same thing in insurance, actually. Like, how do you measure risk when somebody is, you know, self-employed and working under completely new conditions, under completely new circumstances that you you haven't thought about before? And, and, and I you know, it's underwriting credit is the same as underwriting insurance. It's, it's risk. It's risk-based. What is the risk? And if you have no idea what the inputs are to that risk and you have no way of measuring them, then how can you make a decision? But then there's a huge opportunity there so oh, yeah, absolutely so alphabet which is you know google's parent group something like half of their entire workforce is contractors so that's a massive opportunity there of people who are being underserved by the current market potentially when you look you look to people who have multiple employers and so on it's absolutely the new normal so why haven't financial services products uh, caught up with that that way of existing and i think that's it is the financial services products probably have the same input of data that they had 20 30 years ago and it's it's just a case of asking more more questions and different questions. If I have, if I can ask the right, I mean, ultimately, how you measure risk is not something that's prescribed to you. How you explain your products is prescribed by regulation, but how you manage risk is ultimately a case of like, I, what you know, that's my proprietary offering as a lender. How I manage risk is really up to me as the lender. So, if why wouldn't I want more data? Why wouldn't I want to understand customers better? If I can do so, I can reduce risk if I'm understanding more, if I'm getting more data, and I can address more of the market. That's the win win you've got to be looking for increasingly, I think, in the mortgage market. Well, given we've gone completely off topic, I'm going to take <laughs> us to the break. We'll be back very shortly. This deal sets apart to a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Uh, clearly, the pressure is beginning. British jobs and the rules of the European Union. Brexit. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. We will be in New York for New York Fintech Week from the 1st to the 5th of April. If you're in NYC, catch Uncle Sam hosting a Fintech Insider live show with the DIT and very special guests on the future of money. That'll be on the 3rd of April at 6.30 in the Altman Building. We are also partnering with Empire Startups for their seventh annual fintech conference in NYC on April the 3rd. Uh, Explore the agenda and get 15% of your tickets with the code 11FS. And with that, on with the show. So our next story today is one that's dear to our hearts. So the story is that Starling and Monzo are the big winners at the British Bank Awards, but so were we. So I will do Starling and Monzo first. And then for the, you know, it is a podcast, Simon is clutching and stroking our award. It's kind of menacing. Um, I'm not <laughs> hugging it. You are. <laughs> Starling uh, took home two awards at the 2019 British Bank Awards for Best Current Account and Best Business Bank, while its hot coral rival won Best Banking App. Um, its best business bank title comes a fortnight after it clinched 100 million from RBS to expand SME banking, styling that is. Uh, other notable award winners included Virgin Money, winning for best credit card provider. Questionable face. Uh, 
mm-hmm. one that west one best mortgage provider and i'm sure dan has much to say on that um and a little company called 11fs won consultancy of the year beating competition from both deloitte and capgemini uh, well there were many others uh, in the consulting category as well um I'm just being generous here i'm just you know there, there were other names that 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 were also in the in the finalist and there were in you could in theory you could have voted for anyone as well so in, i like to think we beat everyone um and <laughs> and i'm and the award sitting here says so look listen uh Shout out to all of our listeners who voted. Thank you so much for helping us out with this. It's it's you that votes. It's you, the fintech uh, lovers, nerds, and enthusiasts that, that put us in this place. And this is huge, huge, huge for us. So thank you so much to everybody that got involved. Meant a lot. Um, but let's enough about us. Let's get on to the actual awards rather than the, than the <laughs> consultancies getting credibility at last. <laughs> so this is interesting to me because... Um, Starling and Monzo, you know, being the big winners of the night, but the British Bank Awards is a very, very digital thing. Like you, you vote online and it's, it's, you know, promoted very heavily on social media. So whilst, um, I would not take anything away from those guys, I do, I do think that its audience may have been slightly skewed. Um, the other one that was interesting this week was that Monzo won, and I can't remember in which particular awards it was, um, best customer service, taking it out from under First Direct's feet for the first time in, I think, 30 years. And First Direct tweeted them saying, well done, guys. It's good to see a challenger who cares as much about their customers as we do. And I was like, well, that's a social media win, actually. You don't have to be bitter. <laughs> oh, I like But that. that's just a sign they're good at customer service, yeah. surely. That was tone, what's the opposite of tone deaf? Tone super hearing? <laughs> <laughs> That's just like wolf wolf tone here. Yeah, I don't know that's anywhere. Just, that's just tangent. out of this world good, isn't it? Yeah, there's something to be said for, I, I think uh, Monzo also beat uh, First Direct on the Witch um, Consumer Awards about three, four months ago. And consumers are reacting. Uh, and this, of course, comes um, against the sort of uh, backdrop of the remedies funds and sort of mainstream news around that. I think uh, fintech, certainly the challenger banks have gone from that's cute to, oh, crap, they're really making a dent now. Yeah. Um, and I think there's still the argument about, well, they don't really lend. It's all about building balance sheet that you hear all the time. Um, but you can't argue with with that many customers and these sorts of plaudits, can you? The award I was talking about was by, was from Money Saving Expert, and I've just found it on um, the the article on goodhousekeeping.com. So that tells you who's <laughs> voting for that. That's a really interesting demographic insight. Sorry, Daniel, you had a yeah. point. I was just saying we didn't win. And so this is all deeply uns- insensitive of you to bring up because we did win last year. <laughs> it, and there's obviously hard. dubious voting practices and this is all terrible. So I should hide the award that's sitting on the <laughs> table. It is very hard for me to focus with it staring at me like that. <laughs> okay, you well, judged. We'll, very we'll, judged. We'll, we'll just move it along. I'd appreciate it. No, what I think is quite interesting <laughs> oh, is, no, oh, no. is how organisations that didn't even exist four years ago have managed to turn their customers into proper advocates for what they do because uh, particularly in those kind of retail banking categories, it was surveys of customers Customers. So there's, I think they did 27,000 customers reading on it. Um, and it, it was people genuinely advocating for their bank. And, you know, I don't know about you, but my trad bank, I, you know, I'll contact them if I've got something that I'm annoyed about. And that's more or less it. I wouldn't go around to people going, ooh, NatWest. You know, actually, people are, are not just you know, happy with their service, but they're happy to tell people that they like their bank, which is a whole new... that referral amount is is unbelievable. Word of mouth referral is a huge thing that banks almost never had. They had brand, they didn't have word of mouth referral. And and I think, I want to come back to this business case point because I hear it quite often, which is, uh, well, they're not lending. There's always a, well, they're not story. And and I'm trying to think of the good examples. You know, you can almost imagine the the BlackBerry CEO saying, well, Apple don't have keyboards. Well, Apple don't have, you know, uh, BlackBerry Messenger. Well, Apple don't have, and and it, you sort of hear the same from the incumbents. They point out everything that the challengers don't do, um, and rather than really understanding what they have done well, and I think that's the lesson here: is there's something that consumers really, really like, and we should take lessons from that. Why would not lending be relevant to having best app or best current account? Sorry, I'm lost. So the argument goes that the way you make money in banking is by lending. It's a lending game, so you're not really winning unless you're lending. But that's not. What we're talking about, we're talking about customer advocacy, and they really don't care if you're lending or Completely. not. Completely. I think the context here is I end up in rooms with a lot of bankers who say, all oh, those challenges are great, but... Ah, okay, but they've been I around see, for four years, and they're winning awards against organizations that have been around for 160. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you can make those sort of inroads in such a short period of time in an industry that is full of apathy and it is actually quite extraordinary and you don't, I haven't seen that in in another game aside from possibly the the ascendancy of Apple so what I was going to say there was um 
take heart, Dan, because we haven't seen it in insurance either. And we had this conversation the other day. So does anybody actually love their insurer? And with the exception of me, who's an insurance geek, um, nobody loves their insurer. It's very very simple. You go to the one that's cheapest. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but the same with mortgages, you'll go to the one that gives you the best rates. But, But that's because in my mind, those industries are still sort of behind um, retail banking when it comes to having having made the moves and having that mentality switch to like getting customer advocacy. And I know you would I know you would say that Habito absolutely 100% does that and a lot of the insurtechs do as well. But I don't think it's that we'll never get there. I think we're just a couple of years behind and there will come a point where everybody's like, oh my goodness, this insurer, it's so much better. Like, yeah, it might be slightly more expensive or yeah, it might be online only, but you've got to do it because X, Y, Z. The same with a mortgage provider. I think the difficulty with mortgages is they are... Like they're a very pure commodity. Like really, you just want the cheapest one that you're eligible for. But for the- are they? Yeah, clearly. But do they have to be? Well, I think I think particularly with credit, like it's ultimately like you just want the cash to go and do. Do the you thing. though? But also, how you, often do you, you interact with them? You just keep <laughs> asking <laughs> questions. So, but, but like, no, I just said that. because if I think about what uh, what my home is for, and I think about end to end journeys, right? If you think about the problem Monzo started to solve, it's not um, give me a current account; it's help me manage my money. Um, if you think about the problem a mortgage solves, it's not give me a mortgage; it's help me uh, own my own home. And actually, the path to doing that comes from saving a deposit. It comes from all of the paper processes involved. And you do see some people, uh, some brands are now starting to build very strong execution-only mortgage platforms that help you aggregate your doc- documents. But the, I think there's so much more to go. Like banking, digital banking is 1% finished. We say that because there's so much you can do when you start thinking, instead of commodity products, if you start thinking about those end-to-end journeys, what are those services I can do if I have data about a customer? That's where the opportunity is. And to, to Sean O'Day's point, if that's what challenger banks have done in four years, then what happens when they start pushing into the lending and, and around the mortgages and around the, the core lending products? Because I think that's only a matter of time. But I only will get one mortgage every six, 10, 20 years. years if you're on a fixed. Yeah, which yeah, is, but is, then you want to not think about it. You know, I I'm, I have my five year fix. I think about it then, and hopefully, you know, all being well, I never think about it again. You in want the intervening time. Sorry, Dan, we'll let you get in because you actually have the relevant <laughs> points here, and we're talking over you. So, so please. No, I think there's a few things to say. Yes, so like mortgages are, a, if you want to think, they're a low frequency market, right? Like the engagement into in between your two or five year fix is overpayment potentially and whether that's economically sensible but given that mortgages are incredibly illiquid and once the money goes in you can't get it out unless it's an offset mortgage which have fallen from popularity they're not a brilliant way of kind of managing your your savings like it is ultimately it's probably better just to pay your mortgage and overpay if you have surplus cash but not if you're going to need it out so i think I think the selection of mortgages and the experience of applying for a mortgage and, you know, when we talk to customers, the three things that come up again and again is they want transactional certainty early in the process. They want to wait 40 days to figure it out. They want certainty of payment. Like the, like the fact that in the UK we're refinancing our mortgages, beginning that process every 20 months on a two-year fix is completely absurd and completely like non-standard, globally speaking. And they'd like liquidity in the product, which is really, really challenging post the mortgage credit director in 2012. The offset mortgage was a really brilliant product in this space, but sadly, not so much anymore. But that was, to me, that was financial innovation on a commodity product, not service innovation from a consumer perspective. And to me, all of the things that come along with moving home, all of the things that come along with uh, potentially rethinking my finances and sitting down become opportunities for a bank to engage with me in a completely different way and for ancillary services, like whilst you're remortgaging or you're remodeling, like whilst you're remortgaging, are you looking at partner retailers. I think that cross-sell, upsell, and service piece driven by data, again, feels like an opportunity that's not been grasped. Well, I think, which kind of brings us neatly back to the challenger bank point, which is what, you know, I'll, let me be the advocate. I'll be the banker in the room saying, why aren't they lending? Well, because it comes to sustainability of the model. Like, if they can't ultimately, like, be profitable on a unit economic basis, we're going to have an issue. Um, and I think given that, the, you know, the two primary revenue models of the challenger banks are lead generation, which makes sense, although it doesn't, you know, it's, it's a difficult moat to, to defend, given that everybody has access to the same deals from the same third parties, or it's lending. And in the case of banking, it's often quite high cost lending in the overdraft space. So I think, I think it's a reasonable question to ask of the challenger banks, like how are we going to be economically sustainable? So I'm going to take that point. I'm going to move to the next story, which Brilliant. is about a challenger bank. Wonderful. <laughs> I like that segue. Um, this is about Tide. So Tide, the business bank, will raise £60 million for a business banking push. So to go back to the point we've made several times um, today about the Remedies Fund. So Tide um, 
I partnered with ClearBank and ClearBank, which was the bank, won um, a section of the Remedies Fund uh, two weeks ago. So um, off the back of that, Tide says it has received expressions of interest from 70 VCs worldwide over plans to raise funds to match that 60 million grant, um, which was recently awarded to ClearBank. So um, the total £120 million war chest will enable it to meet its goal of capturing an 8% market share by 2023. Bold. Um, the challenger currently claims nearly 70,000 customers equating to a 1.2% share of the UK's 5.7 million SMEs. I didn't do that maths. I hope that's right. Um, the funding will be focused on driving awareness of the Tide brand, overcoming switching friction, which is uh, still harder with small business accounts, um, and creating new products and services along you know, the sort of things we started to expect from these provided payroll tools, expense cards, multi-business banking. Um, so it, it kind of... It, I kind of understand where they're going. And, you know, Starling's got 100 million, so Tide and Clearbank, well, there's two of us. We want, you know, over 100 million as well. And I don't see any reason why not. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't capitalize off the back of it. The more money they've got, the more they can do with it. And then that ultimately goes towards the, the Remedies Fund's ultimate goal, which is better and more products and services in business banking. So why not? I'm, I'm with you. I'm, it's a slightly peculiar press release. I'm not sure I've ever seen one quite like this, <laughs> announcing interest in a future potential funding round. But having said, <laughs> putting that aside, um, I mean, so SME banking's been extraordinarily underinvested in for decades. I think any every penny that goes into it can only be a good thing for a, a pretty horribly underserved market. I think on the back of having raised the remedies funds, it's it's probably timely, given the sheer amount of mainstream press we've seen recently uh, that are, you know, oh, the BCR process was was a fix and blah, blah, blah. No, it wasn't. There was a declared um, kind of potential conflict to the BCR beforehand. So all of that is, is clear. That was about Starling. That was about Starling, not, not clear bank and tide. Um, but, but generally, and then there's been a lot of pushback against Metro because they had some, some accounting issues. There's not much you can throw at tide other than that, like, there were a combination of of, of Tide and Clearbank, which you know, the, I do hear a few grumbles of, oh, well, it's not really a bank. and they, they But generally, I have noticed uh, things in the Standard, things in the Times, things in lots of different financial press, where there's just a, uh, there's a bit of outrage out there that's hitting the mainstream press about the broader remedies piece. So maybe it makes sense that Tide would come out with um, something that was, that was good news on the back of this and, and talking about their ambition. I think the outrage is is quite minimal. I mean, I've seen the articles you mean, but I, I think that they are, to me, they are one or two people who are very angry and they're going to sit and rumble. And then three of the pieces were by the same person in three different publications. And I was like, dude, we can follow you. Your name's on it. Like, you're writing the same thing. Yeah, I, um, I, I would agree with you. The only thing I would say is it suggests to me, and I've certainly had conversations, that that sentiment is shared amongst a number of the major bankers. Um, so it, it, it does strike me that there is some, some sort of sour grapes and or sort of uh, concerns about how this process was followed but uh, I, I don't know that I have any concerns with it to me it looks as if it was fair things were done properly and it looks like challengers won and people are annoyed about that yeah I mean to go back to the, 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 the truth the, the point that you know tired of using it to raise the money I mean that's kind of the purpose of it like yeah, you know you can be angry and whinge or you like in the corner but if it's working for tired then everybody around this table is like cool yeah, I, I think it's just one of those examples where the big banks are, are just much better at setting the news agenda. They've got massive PR teams that, have, they, you know, they used to work with a lot of the newspaper business journalists. Uh, so they're just much better at being able to, <laughs> to, you know, have a word in the, in the ear of whatever journalist is writing that story. Thank you. That's simply how it happens. And, you know, there'll be one or two senior bankers or senior banker PRs who've then gone for lunch with someone at the Telegraph and that's how a story happens. I don't think it's that big a deal. I don't think that many people care about it, but it's just simply how how these things end up in, in, in the news because there isn't really a lot to say about the main story then eh, that seems all right. Yeah, exactly. But so. this is why I wanted to push back against it because I don't like that um, because it does appear to be some senior person somewhere goes for lunch with somebody and ends up in the mainstream news and you risk being able to set a narrative agenda if if you don't call it out as being obvious for what it is versus people, organizations that have a community of support that's grown uh, over the last couple of years from genuine advocacy that you see in the types of awards. Yeah, like, I just think that's just the reality of the, of the media landscape. So, you know, this kind of fair. ties into there is another news story at the moment about Revolut looking for a PR firm. I think it's recognizing that the, the reality of the world we live in is that if you want to influence a news agenda in the way that everyone else does and the reality of how, how news makes it into the papers, then you have to play that game. You can't just have a whole load of bloggers posting pictures on Instagram. 
Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> we almost we almost got all the way through there without mentioning Revolut, but you know, it can't happen. Um just to make clear, Simon's anguish is against the the sour grapes not Tide wanting to raise sixty million pounds. We're very happy with that. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and and you know, credit to Tide and, and everybody involved at Clearbank as well. Um I'm excited to see what they come up with. Again, going back to the previous point, um there's there's a lot of opportunity in SME banking. We've said this many times before. Uh it's one of the most underserved segments, especially for solo entrepreneurs, um, but also for freelancers as we were saying there's a huge amount of opportunity to do this better and to do it right cool well i'm gonna move this on going from paypal earlier down to ebay look nicely tied in there um so uh, ebay founders fintech fund for global financial inclusion so we've taken this story from business insider and i'm going to say this i'm going to say this wrong so forgive me Omidia Network is promoting financial inclusion with a $300 million fund for fintechs. So the US-based network, um, which is the family investment office for um, Pierre Omidia, again, I apologize if that's wrong, will spin off its financial inclusion investment arm as Flourish Ventures. The new firm will have $300 million in capital, including the company's existing $200 million portfolio, and will invest in fintech companies that make a social impact, while also bringing good financial returns. Um, the firm's global portfolio already includes 40 fintech companies that help low- and middle-income households, as well as uh, small businesses, going back to small businesses, better manage their finances. Um, and it's, yes, yeah, it's a global fund. So um, it sounds a little bit sort of the back of the so Gates Foundation. Um, maybe, you know, big tech founder makes lots of money, uh, uses money to do good. Yeah, it is. And, and Amidia have invested in a bunch of things in the past that have done well. So they've done, uh, they invested in uh, Lendo, uh, which is a social media data to, uses social media data to extend credit to applicants. Again, that point about if I take more data in, I can lend to people who didn't fit in the existing processes. Uh, and, and generally, we're seeing, I think we had a story several weeks ago about uh, fintech funds. There's a couple of um, exchange trade funds, ETFs that are collections of fintechs that have massively outperformed the market. So fintech has been really, really growing. Um, so this just seems to make a, a, a lot of business sense. And to the previous point with you know Tide talking about how much they're raising, there's a lot of capital in the market for fintech at the moment. I think fintech has kind of gone from that kind of like, it's going to be a thing, it's going to be a thing to it's one of, if not the mainstream tech investment sort of property at the moment. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, um, you know, no, despite, you know, fears of bubbles, et cetera, et cetera, I don't think fintech investment is going anywhere, which is good for all of us. Um, but also this idea of um, focusing on fintechs that do kind of a social good or are helping those, you know, everybody went after to start with the more affluent market, the more tech savvy market. And now we're seeing people starting to branch out. Um, the one thing I guess that's interesting, and um, I've talked to uh, Dr. Sean Lewin on this podcast about this before, is actually, would it not be better to work out why we need those in the first place? So why are we making it you know, easier for those people who don't have enough money left at the end of the month to take out a loan? Why are we not helping them solve those financial management problems? And that financial management problem may just be that they're not paid enough. There are plenty of people out there who, who don't have enough money and it's nothing to do with how hard they work and how well they manage their money. It's just, you know, pay levels are too low. Um, but what I would really like to see this money invested in, if, if they're talking about financial inclusion, is helping people actually get a grasp on their finances and the kind of apps that are either helping um, people or companies work out what their employees need better. You know, when do you need to be paid? Do you need access to a very low interest loan? Do you need to be able to draw down early or pay back early or pay back late? Those kind of those um, th- those kind of financial services companies that are helping people have, a, have yeah. a better life rather than just kind of, oh, we'll get you a bank account quicker and easier using a new KYC process. It, innovation could be longer, right? Innovation could be payday late lending done digitally and and actually we don't want that so fintech doesn't it cannot cover itself in altruism just because it's doing finance and tech. Um, we need to see socially responsible fintech as much as possible. Quite fortunately, impact is growing massively. I found an article on Forbes that said um, over 2018, impact inv- investing nearly doubled uh, to $228 billion. Um, so you, know, you can halve it to guess what it was previously. And, it, and, it's, and impact investing is a massively emerging asset class, increasingly um, not just um, kind of retail investors, but pension funds, which make up more than 45% of the investable market uh, are looking to get into socially responsible investing. But increasingly, socially responsible investments have a better return than ones that aren't. So it just makes good financial sense to do good for society. Like that just feels like, no, but wait, it's money. It has to be evil. Like what's this about? Well, exactly. If you look at, you know, economies in the global south are are outperforming those in, in, in the West by a significant amount. 
So, you know, it, actually, if, if we can get that virtuous circle of, of uh, investing in socially responsible businesses and that, uh, that having good economic returns, and it's a win-win for everyone, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, all in all, we, we kind of agreed it, it is a good thing. We just want to wait and see how it's distributed. Um, so I'm going to move us on to the next story, which is from Crowdfund Insider, although um, we heard about it before then. Uh, the FCA has appointed its first director of innovation, who is friend of the show, Nick Cook. Um, the FCA already has a director of competition, so it seems natural to appoint a manager to oversee innovation. So um, we spoke to Nick Cook to find out more about his appointment. <laughs> I've recently been appointed as the FCA's first director of innovation. The role was created um, largely in response to our recognition as an organisation that um, we need to continue to modernise how we uh, undertake our regulatory responsibilities and role, um, particularly around how we use um, modern technologies and advanced analytics to support our identification and um, response to harm in financial markets. Um, I think the, the vision um, is a, a sort of logical and uh, an appropriate um, next step on our innovation work. A lot of our early work was really focused on how to support and engage with um, innovative um, companies looking to offer new financial services and products or, or existing products in new ways in the interest of consumers and to, to try and inject new competition and um, entrance into financial markets. So a lot of our work was around building networks, building relationships, understanding what was happening um, in the markets um, and finding ways um, and tools to support the, um, the entrance of new, of new players. More recently, we've been much more conscious um, to look at ourselves and think about how we can embrace some of these new technologies um, some of these new advanced analytics and big data analytics methodologies and approaches um, with the ultimate aim of ensuring that we are as efficient and, and as effective um, a regulator as we can be. And a big part of that will clearly be us continuing to engage internationally with peer regulators around the world um, to share best practice, to share new ideas and new thinking um, and to find ways where we can collectively um, deliver new solutions to long-standing problems and challenges in the markets that we that we regulate. So it's a really exciting time. Um, you'll see much more focus from the organisation on how it's using advanced analytics, whilst you'll also continue to see us engaged extensively through the regulatory sandbox, the, the new global financial innovation network, um, our tech sprint programmes, uh, our work on digital regulatory reporting. So it's going to be a busy, busy period for the division, and I'm um, really excited to be leading it. Thank you very much for that, Nick. So now we're on to our and finally story, which this week comes from Bloomberg. And the headline is that Japanese banks will finally stop using a piece of technology from the 1800s. Right. <clears throat> Here we go. Personal stamps or hanko will no longer be required to open accounts or withdraw money at some of the country's biggest lenders. Lenders have begun allowing customers to transfer money or make payments with their smartphone or a tablet instead of pressing wood to ink and paper like their ancestors. For millennials in Japan, one of the most tech-obsessed places on earth, the change is long overdue. Um, and other areas of Japanese officialdom hanko are firmly entrenched, as they are in Lloyds of London, I'd point out. Um, small businesses use them for many contracts, and they're still required for things like marriage and home ownership. Um, as many are, uh, sorry, as many as 100 of MUFG, the country's biggest lenders, 500 plus domestic outlets will convert to the new format by 2024, which does seem a slightly long time. I mean, it is slightly funny, but it is also, we can't really laugh that much as somebody who's paid a notary X amount of money to come in and literally rubber stamp a document. Yeah, and also given, especially where the US is with um, signatures still on you know, uh, Mike Stripe, like this technological, it, to me, it's not a technological story. To me, it's, it's a story about uh, how interesting these stamps are when you look at them um, and the history behind them. Um, and it, uh, if anything, I, I'm, I'm quite sad to see them maybe disappear. Like there's, there's, there's something quite nice about them and they, they, they're beautiful looking things. It's literally like a signet ring. It's yeah, kind it's of like, this right. is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a, does that make but I, I, looking at me like a mad? I could it just is see it kind taking of a, off. It's no, got a kind of a vinyl versus MP3 vibe. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. everyone in Shoreditch stamping I've got their. Tom Monzo, that's <laughs> it. will be issued with you know yeah. stamp pads. No, I, I see. I bought one as a souvenir, and I had no idea they were so ingrained in getting things done. You know, I, we talked about how difficult SME banking is in the UK, and when I read about this story, someone whose name I can't pronounce clearly, um, an accounts clerk, at, uh, industrial parts maker, said before she can pay suppliers, she has to go and stamp cash transfer forms with. 
their company's yank, uh, hanko and take them to the bank for processing. So if you actually look at some of the yeah. demographic challenges that they have in Japan, and some of the, that there is a desperate need to up productivity and things like that clearly are wastage in the system. Yeah, so in order to uh, to just deal with some very obvious challenges they have, then sad though it is that they have to go, although I'm quite glad I got one in Daiso. I mean, I think that the, the cultural thing as well, like uh, from what I understand, and I've been to Japan, but from what I understand, family heritage is hugely important and the kind of the, the ancestral ties and that kind of, you know, this is our stamp and our family's, you know, our family stamp is, is, is hugely important to them. Um, but it's moving those things from being symbolic to being, you know, and you can still have them as your as a little you, family you trinket. You can still do it during like life moments. Yeah. Um, you know, sort Stamping of your marriage certificate or something like oh. that, you know. But do you need it to, to process an invoice? No, I no, no, not. sorry. That wasn't, that wasn't my argument. <laughs> I was like, I understand why they why they are so attached and why they've remained so long. And in the same way that a lot of people in this country do still wear signet rings. Like, you know, nobody has required you to push your, your ring into a seal of red wax. Or as far as I'm aware, they haven't um, for any legal documents for a very long time. I think people People have them. lived and died for, for a number of generations without having had to have done so. But the fact that they exist is lovely. Um, but this comes back to that cash point previously of like just the cost of paper in the economy is enormous. And being able to reduce it has a massive impact on productivity. Astonishing mortgage trivia, which is the gift I will give that you. That sounds like a podcast <laughs> in its own right. Astonishingmortgagetrivia.com. <laughs> serious thought to. Um, uh, Germany, if you want to buy a house... Uh, Two percent of the value of the home, you, the buyer, and the seller will have to go to a notary together and have the purchase contract read to them together. So oh, that's wow. not even the, the, the man who comes in and charge you, or woman who comes in with six hundred no, no. pounds to just sort of put the stamp on the piece of paper. Two percent, two percent of the value of the home will be paid to this man to read you the contract simultaneously. Wow. That seems excessive. It's there's fifteen percent of fixed costs in the purchase Can you do it of the like home. Skype. I don't know. I suspect not. Uh, for 2%, I'd want to... Well, I'd, I'd actually want to martini. I'd want to hold... Yeah, I'd want like a mariachi band to sing it yeah. to me. I'd want to high-five me. I, I thought all of the paper involved with mortgages was bad enough, but giving somebody 2% to read it to me... That actually sounds like a punishment as well. Sitting and listening to the contract being read to you. Is anybody else picturing a town crier doing, hear ye, hear ye? I was actually picturing when you have to go and hear a will read, and that's the only other time I can think of that circumstance where you have to go and listen to somebody reading it to you. You don't have to but traditionally that is what happens you're all called together and you listen to a solicitor read it out and it's a very very dark moment of your life buying a house is supposed to be one of the happiest moments of your life to hang out with the seller like who you're about to like have to like clear through their old underwear and stuff that they've left behind the washing machine like i don't want to meet that guy (laughs) (laughs) but on that note i'm gonna wrap up this week show Um, amazing or no astonishing coming coming to you soon yeah that's your next marketing fund dan's own podcast um thank you so much to our guests for joining us where can people find out more about you do you have a twitter handle a website a linkedin profile a carrier pigeon dan uh you can come to habito.com where you can get all of the glorious mortgages um and all of them literally all of the glorious mortgages apart from first direct uh, the rest of them um <laughs> uh, but and me i'm dh underscore habito on twitter Perfect. How about you, Sharon? I'm all over the internet like a rash, but probably the best place to get me is uh, Sharon O'Day on Twitter. Simon, how about you? Uh, you can find me at the 11FS office hugging our British Banking Award. Also, you can uh, find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email directly simon at 11FS.com. And as for me, you can find me, as always, probably chatting to Sharon uh, on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, What did you think of today's stories? Uh, Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love the show, be sure to leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.